Thanks for listening to The Awakening Podcast. We hope this message inspires and encourages you today. Well, we've been in a bit of a series and calling it The Showdown, and every week it seems like God's giving me more and more to speak on this. This is the second week, and I only thought it would be three weeks, but who knows? We might go even longer than that, but we have been talking uh, really this whole season about our choice as Christians. Do we choose Christ, or do we choose culture? Do we come before God, or do we answer to man? Do we love the world? Or do we love Jesus? We're talking about a worldview. We're talking about a way we worship. We're talking about our approach to all of life. Will it be Christ or will it be culture? And um, we've been looking at the story of Ahab, Jezebel, and Elijah. Ahab is a picture of passivity in leadership, abdication of responsibility. Jezebel is what comes into that passivity. It's a picture of of an antichrist spirit, a manipulative spirit that tries to replace God with a counterfeit gospel. These spirits can take place in homes. They can take place in churches. They can take place in nations. But every time the spirit of Jezebel and Ahab rises up, so God sends his reply. And that's the spirit of Elijah. It's a confrontational spirit, but it is a spirit that represents God on planet earth. You are Christ's ambassador. And I pray that you, as a Christian, as a leader, and us as a church, that we have that spirit on us. The bold, proclaiming spirit of Elijah that hears from God and speaks his words despite consequence or cost. But all we value above all is Christ. And I'm wondering, what does it take to turn the hearts of God's people back to him? What does it take to turn a nation back to its creation, its founder? What does it take to turn broken people that have drifted a long way off? What does it take to awaken them, to to rouse them from their slumber? What does it take for them to turn back to their father's house like the prodigal son? He came to himself and remembered his father. What does it take to remember God your father? This was the question that we see confronting the people of Israel. How much longer will you allow this spiritual drought, physical drought to exist in your nation before you repent? We obviously are seeing around the world and in our nation very difficult times. But I hear the voice of God saying, humble yourself, turn towards me. I will come and I will bring salvation and healing towards you. What does it look like? What kind of behavior on our part, will initiate a response from God to us. We find, I believe, a model and an answer in the book of Kings, 1 Kings chapter 18. And it says, Then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left. He's speaking to the whole nation of Israel. And he says, All, get it, Israel, all of the Lord's prophets are gone. Temples are broken. Altars are cast down. I'm the only one left. But Baal has 450 prophets. It's interesting that the counter-religion has grown in a time of famine and drought. He said, get two bulls for us. And let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves and let, one, uh, and let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. 
And I will prepare the other bowl. And then I'll put it on wood, but not set fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God. And I'll call on the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire is God. His challenge, his showdown is to say, let's see some real power. Let's see a display of God's authority. Let's see a real answered prayer, a miracle, radical change. Let's see something real, more than words, more than lifestyles, more than numbers. Let's find the God that will answer when we cry out. If you know anything about history, every single time Israel got desperate enough to cry out, so God was ready to answer. And I believe that this example from Elijah is really a model for us on how to bring ourselves, our family, our nation back to God. And here's my point today. I believe that we, you and I, if you are a saint, if you are a Christ follower, if you are a Christian, if you're a member of our church, that we are sent to lead the searching to salvation. We are sent to lead the searching. This nation was searching. Our nation is searching for the real, for the powerful, for the mighty. And I believe you and I are sent not to be quiet. We are not here by accident. We are not called to passivity. We cannot abdicate our moral responsibility. Now more than ever, your voice, your influence, your prayers, your intellect, your knowledge, your body, mind, and soul must be engaged in bringing yourself those you're responsible for, those around you, back towards the ever-powerful one, the God that created and can redeem. I believe that we are called to lead all those around us towards salvation and salvation alone. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And how then can they call on him who they have not believed? And how... How are they to believe in him who they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? Hear me, church. If you're saved, you're sent. Stand for truth. Stand for righteousness. Stand for Christ. Because we need missionaries to America right now in this moment more than ever. Your family needs someone sent to them that they might proclaim. Otherwise, they won't even hear the word in order to initiate the believing. I believe right now we are in a moment much like Elijah where, where the challenge is put forth before us, before our nation. Whose God is going to show up now? What's the real? What's the authentic? Now here's the problem. There's 450 prophets of Baal and only one Elijah. If you would go by the numbers, it seems that Elijah is not blessed. If you go by the numbers, it would seem that Baal has all the strength and all the power and all the might. But I want you to know the supernatural does not work on our statistical odds. The supernatural is into the miraculous. I believe that a majority does not determine morality. That might does not necessarily make right. That society does not get to dictate what brings salvation. And hear me, 
And I'm challenging you today, Christian, if you are going to crowdsource your conviction, if you're going to try to crowdsource your direction, you will never get to Christ. Read the New Testament. Most of the obstacles and hindrances in the New Testament to get to Christ was the crowd. Think of the woman with the issue of blood. She has to push through the crowd. And even after all that, she only barely is able to touch Jesus. It was the crowd that was between her and Christ. I, I mean, think, think of Zacchaeus. It was the crowd that was grumbling and mumbling. How dare him eat? How dare him become a friend of sinners? Eat with someone such as this. The crowd's always going to get it wrong. They always think that those that are the worst are actually the least likely deserving of salvation. Thank God Jesus never crowdsourced his direction. Thank God he didn't have a poll from the disciples on who he should go to. Because make no mistake, Zacchaeus is out. And you and I, we're Zacchaeus. We would be out. Hear me. Blind Bartimaeus, he would have never got to Jesus if he had listened to the crowd. When the disciples, get this, the disciples... We're telling them, hey, be quiet. Stop talking like that. Come on, you're going to disrupt some stuff. Come on, you're not, you're not keeping the peace right now. Come on, this is over the top. You're making people uncomfortable. What did he have to do? He said, Jesus, son of David. He's not calling for Peter or James. He's calling for Jesus, son of David. Have mercy on me. Hear me, Christian. If you are going to listen to the crowd right now, you are going to miss Jesus. But if you listen to the Spirit, you understand your need. If you come into repentance, Jesus is there, ready, willing, waiting. There might be a 450 others saying one opinion, but as long as there's one that's sent, that stands, that searches out Jesus Christ. The reality is, our current culture right now, it's widely accepted by man. Our current culture it's, it is pursued, loved. It's caught mankind. But our current culture is rejected by God. God does not receive what society presents as truth. He doesn't agree. He stands at a distance. But he also says, in any of you that would want to come to me, the way is wide open. The path has been made. The question is, will you lead the comfort of culture, the acceptance of society, the comfortability of a lack of convictions to run after Christ? The Bible says, wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And the majority go that way. But narrow is the gate. Small is the path that leads to eternal life, and very few find it. I pray you're one of the few. I pray you're one of the ones that are hungry and desperate for truth, Christ, no matter what. Because hear me, when you choose Christ, you reject the world. Built into that choice is a rejection. I mean, think of it like marriage. When you decide to get married and you stand and you create a covenant contract between the man and the woman, what that man is saying to the wife is, in choosing you, I reject all others. In choosing you, I say no to every other person on the planet, you and you alone. This is why the Bible says that the church is the bride of Christ. 
That in choosing Christ, we say no to everything else, everyone else, every other culture, every other system, every other idea or ideology, every other idol, all the other ways of thinking. It becomes like oil and water. Christ and culture no longer mix. You and culture no longer get along. You don't message each other on Facebook any longer. You don't slide in the DMs. You don't look twice. You no longer have that attraction open. Take the world, but give me Jesus. So Christian, saint, Christ follower, when you choose Christ, you reject the world's systems. And hear me, you reject the world's mindsets. And more than that, you reject the world's actions. You should look different, increasingly so. You should speak different, talk different, believe different. It should be notable, noticeable. And I believe that, that we really were not called to blend in. We were called to throw off the cloak like Bartimaeus, throw off the old identity and stretch for the new identity that is found in Christ Jesus and Jesus alone. But I got some good news for you. You and God are a majority. In the supernatural, you and God are more than enough. Think of David and God versus Goliath. Moses and God versus the Red Sea. Think of Gideon and God versus the Amalekites. You and God are a supernatural majority. When God begins to initiate that connection with you, when you begin to pray to the ever-living God, the everlasting, the all-powerful, you all of a sudden become so much more than you. The Bible says when two or more are gathered, there I am in your midst. If you look around and you can't find anyone else, say, Holy Spirit, agree with me. And the two of us are going to be a majority. We're going to speak life. We're going to speak faith. We're going to uh, preach hope. We're going to have uh, faith for what's to come, not fear. And you say, well, everyone around me is filled with fear. Yeah, yeah, there's 450 prophets always. But they're always false prophets, naysayers, negative, downers, angry. If you're one, then be the one. But I want you to know, you won't be one for long. When you open your voice, God will rally a nation around you. He'll bring a crew to you. For God sets the lonely in families. He'll bring you to the right church. Get around the right people. Your example will begin to awaken the dying embers of faith, and even in your family and those around you. Make no mistake, you will not be alone for long. We see, we see that Elijah, he allows the prophets of Baal to go first. Because he is not afraid of what's going to happen. You go first. Go ahead. You take the initiative. Because he knows there's not going to be any fire. So I'll go next. But, but you go first. And so they did. They built up their altar. They put their sacrifice on it. And they began to shout out, Baal, answer us. They shouted with their voice. They prayed. They lifted their worship. But there was no response. No one answered. And then they danced around the altar. 
that they had made. They danced and they shouted and they had their music. They had their occultic rituals. But around at noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Can I just give you an aside? This is one of my favorite portions in all of Scripture because it just shows a humanity to, like, the world's greatest prophet. It's just one of my favorite moments because it's so unexpected. Here these people are. They're putting their all into prayer. They're putting their all into dancing. And they're in front of, don't forget, the whole nation's watching. You want to talk about an audience? The whole nation's watching this showdown. And these guys that for three and a half years have been getting fat at Jezebel's table when everyone else was starving to death, that had plenty and had water and had all this time to dedicate to themselves and self-care and spiritualism when everyone else was broken and destitute and searching. Now's the moment. Show us how all that blessings is going to overflow onto us. So they shout and they worship and nothing happens. And so Elijah begins to talk to them. He says, hey, shout louder. Hey, shout. You come on. That's not real faith. Shout louder. This guy's not passionate. Look, he's barely dancing. Come on, dance better. Surely he is a God. Perhaps he's deep in thought. Maybe, maybe Baal is busy or he's traveling. You know, one translation says maybe he's relieving himself. He's using the restroom. Come on, you got to get his attention. Come on, put your back into it. Come on, stir up some conviction. Maybe he's sleeping. <laughs> And he must be awakened. Maybe your God's out of it, you know, and you really got to rouse him. Makes me laugh that Elijah's response was to taunt their ridiculous idolatry. He mocked their false idolatry. You know, you remember a couple weeks ago where I said that the anointing on Elijah is confrontation. And that's not unchristlike. Because we see Christ many different times confront people. We see him confront the devil. We see him confront the Pharisees. And that's the spirit on Elijah, is a confrontational spirit. And just and disagreement doesn't necessarily mean division. Disagreement is not necessarily unrighteous. Here we see it ramped up to another level. We see Elijah not only disagreeing, not only confronting, the, but making a fool out of these people who had made a fool out of the people. Now we see him saying, come on, where's the power that you've been preaching about? Here's the reality. There are some beliefs, there are some ideologies that do not deserve to be taken seriously. There are some things that actually are ridiculous. Foolishness, childish, unintellectual. There are some things that don't need to be tolerated among those that are Christians. That have their minds set towards God. That have the word of God in the gospel in their hearts. There are some things that you should make fun of. And I think you should make fun of the things that are a mockery unto God. Let me tell you just this, and this is just speaking for me and my church. But our beliefs will not be dictated by a 20-year-old armed with one sociology class and a Twitter account. 
Our beliefs will not be dictated by passionately misguided people with no intellectual foundation or spiritual discernment who are parroting professors that have doctorates in nonsense studies. We are going to be holding to the ancient truths that are living, they're active, they're relevant. By the way, they work, they have divine power, and we are not going to give ourselves over to theories that were just created in the last 20 years that are absolutely filled with foolishness. Ridiculous. And we got to pretend, well, there's some merit, there's some merit to, to that dumb idea. There's some, there's not. Can I just set you free? You can acknowledge the truth of the situation. You can acknowledge the reality of the situation when there's foolishness, especially coming out of an antichrist counterfeit spirit, counterfeit gospel. Let me tell you a secret. You do not have to legitimize the ridiculous. You don't have to speak to it. You don't have to ang- answer it. I was going to say you have to answer, but angry came out. You don't have to be angry about it. You don't have to fight with people online. Your mother-in-law, say, I love you. God bless you. Whatever. You do your dance. You lift your voice. And I'll pray. And let's see which God answers with fire. I'll give you a sneak peek about with what's going to happen. The Bible says our God is a consuming fire. What's Elijah's response? He laughs. Because laughter always undercuts false authority. You know, there is nothing that authoritarians hate more than not being taken seriously. Like, have you ever laughed at your mom when she was trying to discipline you? It infuriates her. Or those of you that ever got called to the principal's office but you couldn't take it seriously, what's the response of the principal as you and your friend are kind of giggling over there? They get infuriated because you're not taking their authority serious. The reality is the devil and everything that flows from him, the enemy and all of his systems of thought, they, do not, they don't deserve to be taken seriously. So your response can be like Elijah's response and laugh and undercut their authority. I, I was preparing for this sermon and, and, and asking God about what is that, you know? What is that reaction of, of laughter? And I felt God say to me, it is the reaction of confidence. The reality is we are in a showdown for the souls of our nation I believe even the world. We are in a moment right now where there is God versus evil. Jezebel versus Elijah. Christ versus an antichrist spirit. We are in the midst of this. But I want you to know I'm confident that the God that began a good work, he's going to finish it. As I was praying through the sermon, I felt I felt a word from God. I felt like God speak to me and say this, I'm going to have the last laugh. I believe that God, through all of this chaos, he's going to have the last laugh. That he's going to turn things around for you, for the church, 
the nation, maybe even the world. In Psalm 2, you know what it says? It says, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my own king in Zion. The goal of the enemy is always to usurp God's authority, to set his own king up. That's what Jezebel came to do, was to usurp the king Ahab, but God laughs and said, no, I've set my own king, and he has a name, and he is a prince of peace, and he is a wonderful counselor, mighty God, and the king set in Zion is Jesus Christ. I have set him on my holy hill. Look at what he says in Psalm 37. He says, the wicked plot against the righteous, and they gnash their teeth at them, but the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he knows that their day is coming. The Lord laughs at the wicked because he will overcome. I want to declare to you this truth. God is not done working. In you, those around you, his bride, the church, this nation in the world, he's not done working. And in the end, he's going to have the last laugh. After they had done their thing for hours and hours, Elijah gathered all the people close to him. You know, it's interesting what 2020 has felt like is God pulling us away from false prophets and idolatry, pulled us away from any institutions of stability that we had faith in more than God. And what has God done? It's like he's, it's like he's drawn us close to him. I don't know about you, but for me, I've just felt an awakening to a complete reliance on God. The old things have passed away. I want to become new. I don't know about you, but I can sense the Spirit of God calling me closer to Him, calling me closer to His presence. I don't, I don't want to just pray. I don't want to just pray. I want to be prayerful. I don't want to just have faith. I want to be faithful. I don't want to just know of God. I want to have relationship with God. God wants to draw you close. The Bible says, if you draw near to me, in James, I will draw near to you. That's the goal. And isn't it interesting that the prophets had set themselves up apart from the people in a special place, but the prophet of God says, come on, let's come together. Come on, let's gather. Let's gather the saints. Come on, we're going to pray together. We're going to encourage each other. We're going to be for each other. Not for division or anger, systems of idolatry. We're going to be for each other. So he gathers the people, and then what does he do? It's pretty powerful. The Bible says that he rebuilds the altar of the Lord that had been torn down. Because see, in that time, when you built an altar to Baal, you had to tear down the altar of the Lord. There cannot be two gods. Didn't Jesus say that? You cannot serve two masters. You'll either hate the one and love the other, love the one, hate the other. And so when you see God's people come in, they would tear down these old gods and rebuild the ancient altars of their fathers. If you read the Old Testament, you will see that God put these altars in marked spaces. They, they not only were meant for sacrifices, but they were monuments to God's faithfulness. And more than that, they were boundary markers that this area is run and ruled by this God. This is why 
when false ideologies, false idolatry, false religions would come in, they would try and tear this down because it was a symbol of tearing down one God and replacing it with another. Can I ask you, have you seen that recently? Tearing down so that there can be a replacing? See, the reality is these spirits know that there is something to boundaries and that the demonic realm can rule a boundary, but so can the angelic realm. And I pray the church of Jesus Christ, that's the modern day altar. Jesus was the finished sacrifice. But I pray that the church gets lifted up as the new altar, that we become the living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God. That the plans of the enemy to tear down the church fail. Tear down Christians and their family fail. And instead that we are built up one to another by the Spirit, living stones, interconnected, building each other up with love and encouragement and good works and encouraging words. That we are for each other, not against each other. That the world might look at this monument and not just at our buildings, and not just at our stained glass, not just at our videos, but at the people who are faithful in the times of shaking. I pray the church becomes an altar that is rebuilt, that brings glory to God. So that's what Elijah did, was he went to repair the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. His altar was built with 12 stones, 12 stones that represented the tribe of Israel. I'm going to give you three today that I feel and the rest next week. But here's the reality. Every generation must rebuild its own altar. It must rebuild the altar that had been neglected and forgotten and allowed to fall into disrepair and disrepute. That's what revival is, you know. Revival is a real rebuilding of an altar that had become neglected. It's just another word for it. It's where God says, hey, here's an area of faith, of life, of, of the church that has fallen into pieces. We've not preached it. We've not believed it. And when God puts his finger on it, he says, now build it back up. And the greatest revival we've ever seen was the Reformation. It was so powerful that it led to the Enlightenment and the Renaissance. So powerful that it, it resonated all through today. The Reformation changed the world. It was a revival. And what was the thrust of that revival? It was a remembering of scriptures, leaving the corrupt um, authority of a dead religious church and reawakening to the life-giving scripture of God. It was a revival, and so they rebuilt the altar of scripture. Uh, think of the, the, the awakenings. The awakenings... Um, came into a lifeless church, and it brought people back to a personal relationship with God. It was rebuilding the altar of friendship with God. Think of Azusa Street in 1906 that happened on the West Coast. What was that? But a revival, a rebuilding of the Holy Spirit, the, th the, the, the third um, a part of the Trinity, which had been forgotten of the church. But the Holy Spirit that comes with miracles, speaking in tongues, supernatural circumstances, uh, vision, all of the things the Holy Spirit brings had been forgotten. But God said, rebuild that altar. 
Rebuild that altar. I mean, I can talk about so many more. Billy Graham and the awakening for salvations of souls, the Jesus movement in the 70s, which, which came from the hippie movement that was searching for peace and love. And they found the Prince of Peace and the God that is love. Every generation has had to rebuild the altar. But what's the counterfeit? The counterfeit is to tear down to put its own thing up, Baal. But God says that's the counterfeit, but I'm about to bring the real thing. And I believe that God is going to use us to rebuild the altar of his word, the altar of his church, the altar that he has set apart for this land. Proverbs, it says, do not move or remove the ancient boundary stones set up by your ancestors. God's saying it's too important. Keep it holy. Keep it set apart. This this place of sacrifice, foundation of boundaries. You know, I've, I've recently gotten to hiking, and by that I mean I've gone on two hikes. But I, um, I live in New England, and when you go deep in the woods of New England, you discover a really interesting thing. That as far as you think you are from civilization, there are old stone walls all in the midst of trees. Almost wherever you go in New England, you'll find these things on the side of roads, backyards, but deep in uninhabited places, you will find these, these old uh, stone walls. What were they? They were boundary markers. What would happen is when they would dig up the ground to make a field, build a house, the soil is so rocky here in New England that they would take those rocks and they would set them aside and they would be set as boundaries. What's interesting is 100, 200 years later, I could be walking through a woods that looks like it's been there forever and yet the boundary markers remain. What is God saying? He's saying, set up some boundaries. Set up a monument. Set up an altar that hundreds of years later, people can look to it, remember what God did, and the call to every generation, every father, mother, every young person, is this call. Rebuild the altar to the Lord. Rebuild his church. Rebuild the things that have been torn down by false religion, lack of faith, strange beliefs. Rebuild the things that have become neglected. Maybe we thought they've become antiquated, not relevant anymore. But God brings us back to our first love, to the secret place. The Holy Spirit awakens us to say, no, these things are not old. They must be rebuilt. They're not out of date. They're as relevant today as forever. Let me ask you this. So you might be saying, Jordan, practically, what do you mean? My question is this. What foundational stones have we allowed to fall because of neglect? What foundational things, boundary markers, what part of the altar of the living God have we allowed to fall into disrepair on our watch? I hear the spirit of Elijah say, rise and build. Rebuild the altar. There are three stones that I want to speak to you about on the altar of the Lord. And the first stone is this stone right here. Let's call it the stone of Jesus. Jesus is the foundation stone. Look at this scripture. The Bible says the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. We read about Jesus being the chief cornerstone in all of these different verses, and I'll try and link them uh, and get these notes to you. 
But in the process of rebuilding the altar, what's the first stone that we have to place? I believe it's the stone of Jesus Christ. And he becomes the cornerstone. In other words, all the other stones of this altar rest on this stone. If you remove the stone of Jesus, you have no altar. Everything collapses and crashes. By the way, that's true not just in the church, but of society. That if we remove Christ, we're shocked by a collapsing world. Well, what was it? It was a foundation that was set on the rock that is Jesus Christ. And it's built into thinking. It's built into culture. It's built into society. And if we say no longer, we don't want you in our schools. We don't want you in government. We don't want even the churches to be open. What happens when you remove it? He's the chief cornerstone. If you remove him from your life, years later you'll say, what happened? The altar collapsed. The altar fell into neglect and disrepair because without Jesus, we have nothing. Church, our life must be built on Jesus and his example, on his teachings and his leadership. Above all, in the process of finding souls, rescuing people, bringing a nation back to him, it must be Jesus. Look at this verse right here in John. Jesus says, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Come on, hold fast. You say the winds are they're raging. The waves are crashing. Hold on to Christ. He is the rescue ship of salvation. He says, hold fast to me. Then you'll become my disciple. Then you will know the truth. And the truth shall set you free. I'm afraid that we have a church. I'm afraid that we have Christians that want Jesus as a philosopher but not Jesus as Lord, Savior, and Master. But I believe that Jesus will not be accepted the way we want. He says, accept me the way I am. Paul says, I'm a slave to Christ. In fact, I no longer live. I no longer exist. It's just Christ in me. Here's my question. Have you bowed your knee to Jesus and Jesus alone? Have you knelt before God and accepted him above everything else? Your old mindsets, the parts that you even don't understand in the Bible, maybe even parts that you have difficulty agreeing with. Can you say, I am not the end all? You are Jesus. You become the chief cornerstone, and I bow, and I, I give my life to you. I believe we... We've got a problem. We're trying to fit God into our lives as opposed to trying to follow God with our lives. Can we acknowledge you are Lord? And we bend the knee even when we don't understand, even when it doesn't make sense. Acts 4 says salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven which is given to mankind by which we must be saved. Jesus is the chief cornerstone. And I believe our generation is called to reset this altar, to put its boundaries and its foundation back, but it must start with Jesus. The second stone that I believe has fallen in the, in, from this altar is the stone of the Holy Spirit. See, Jesus said, when I leave, I will send another, a helper who is the Holy Spirit to you. 
and he will reveal all truth to you. It's the stone of the Holy Spirit. Here's the truth, that Jesus gives us the Spirit so that when the Spirit speaks, he'll speak to guide and correct and encourage and release gifts. Listen, Christian, if you have the Holy Spirit within you, then you have an internal indicator of what is right and what is wrong in every aspect of life. And you check it. Check with the Holy Spirit. So many times people will come to me and say, well, I'm thinking about doing this or that or this. What do you think? And I say, look, you've got the Holy Spirit. Have you asked him? No. So we're going to ask everyone we know except the, the one that knows all. Come on. You've got some, you've got some stones in a wrong place. You've got some priorities in, in, a wrong, in a wrong set. You need to reset in your life. Jesus, then his spirit. Jesus, then his word. Hear me. Listen to me, young, young person. When you silence his spirit, when you ignore it, when you push it aside, that's when you begin to move towards sin. But when you follow his spirit, that's when you discover truth. I believe the church, Christians, need to put Jesus back in his proper place. And then we need to put the Holy Spirit back in his proper place. He's not weird. You're weird. Maybe he's difficult to understand, but that's because he's God. And we're finite. I want to make room for the Holy Spirit. I pray the church grows in the gifts of the Holy Spirit. That we are able to speak in tongues. That we're able to produce the fruit of the Holy Spirit. That we're able to receive and grow in the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Above everything else, I pray that that is something that we begin to embark on. That the Holy Spirit is put in his proper place as we rebuild the altar of Jesus. My final point, and I've got many more, but next week I'm going to speak on them. But the final rock, stone, in rebuilding the altar that I believe we as a culture, church, that we need to engage in is the word of God. The Bible says this, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit. You see how this connects? First, there's Jesus. He gives the Spirit. And then the, the Spirit, uh, the Spirit, uh, sorry, I, I need to finish the rest of this, this first. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So, so God gives us uh, the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit, he says, I'm going I'm to give you a sword. In other words, I'm going to give you something for you to slice through some lies through. I'm going to give you some, something that's really sharp. It is the Word of God. Oh, what a, what a thing our culture needs, but the word of absolute truth. Hear me, the word of God is absolute truth. 100%. It is from God to us. It, it, it speaks life into us. The word of God sets our moral framework. It sets how we engage with society and with self. See, the, the problems are right now... The problem is so many, so many strange things are coming, not just into the world, but into the church. And, and we have teachings that are a derivative of God's word, but are not directed by God's word. We've allowed personal experience and emotion to be elevated over God's word. Christians, we give more credibility to our supernatural experiences strange dreams, stuff we see on YouTube, 
things friends say to us, things that we feel over the established, powerful, truth-filled Word of God. Jesus must come first. The Holy Spirit must be given his place, and the Word of God must become the foundation stone upon which we build our whole life on. Hear me, we cannot exchange Scripture for society. We cannot exchange the Word for the world. We cannot exchange uh, truth for popular opinion. Because the result will be scriptureless saints in search of salvation outside of the Holy Spirit, in search of salvation outside of Christ, outside of the cross. We must put the word of God back in his place. Otherwise, we will fall into a, a blend of strange beliefs. Without the word of God, what do we have left? But secular humanism, the fact that we can do this without God. What do we have left but moralism? Or what's worse, political ideologies. Because that's the new religion, you know. That's the new religion. And it comes with all of the trappings of religion. Confession, evangelism, experiences, and priests. In fact, there's some high priests. And all of these people stand and represent this new religion in the church bows how why what has happened stone got put out of place stone lost its position the altar became neglected and god says rebuild the altar church Come back to my word, my spirit, and my son. For I am unashamed of the gospel. I am unashamed of the word. Because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. First to the Jew, then to the Gentile. The word is the power of God that brings salvation. What is the need of society? salvation. You understand, church, that God has put you, us, on planet Earth specifically. He predestined you to be who you are and where you are. And he is calling the church right now to engage its faith and its passion and its mind, its mind, its intellect, and its voice to rebuild the altar that the word of God might be declared to all the earth, that people might find salvation. Here's my question, church. Are these stones, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, the word, are they in their proper place in your life? Judgment begins in the house of the, of the Lord. It begins with you and I. Are these three things in our, are they in the proper place? Because if not, then God can't use you. But when they do begin to be set in the proper place for us as Christians and us as a church, then God calls and he sends and he saves through us. You were set apart, sanctified to be sent to those who are searching for salvation. But we don't want to save them into something worse than what they were saved out of. 
We have to save them in to a church that has set God in its proper place and rebuilt the altar of the Lord. So church, today, through this pandemic, maybe through your sin or yourself or your lack of knowledge, can I ask you, have you lost priorities in your life? Has that altar been neglected and torn down? Have you lost the living water and been thirsty in your soul again? Has your mind been darkened by strange thinking, poor beliefs? Has your soul been wounded by sinful actions? Christian, God needs you right now. He wants to use you right now. You are necessary for his plan on planet Earth. But you must first and foremost rebuild the altar in your heart. And us as a church, rebuild it in our region. That those that are saved might come into the knowledge of Jesus Christ and experience radical salvation. Rebuild the altar, church. That you might be sent to lead the searching to salvation. And if you've never made Jesus your Lord and your Savior, today's the day to make him the chief cornerstone of your entire life and existence. Where you come and you acknowledge that you've done it on your own, you've tried, and you failed. And God does not hold your sin, shame, guilt, your failure against you. He's not that kind of God. Jesus is open. The door is open. And he says, come to me if you're weary. Come to me if you've fallen short. Come to me and I'll help you rebuild your life. If that altar has fallen down, maybe who you used to worship was yourself. Or you worship the false idols of the world, because there's many Baals. There's many false idols. I don't know what it was for you. Maybe it was academics. Maybe it was fashion or popularity. Maybe it was music or industry. I don't know what you worshipped. But if you worshipped anything other than Jesus, know that you worshipped something that cannot save. Cannot sacrifice satisfy or sanctify. But Jesus came to receive you. More than that, to redeem you. That you might be eternally changed. Your name written in the book of life. That when you die here on planet earth, that merely becomes transition into eternal life. With Christ. Today, right now, we can begin to build a powerful altar in your life. Set some good boundaries. We can begin to rebuild a place of peace and forgiveness and hope. But Jesus must become the first chief cornerstone. And upon him, you build everything else. And I can make you this promise that when the storms come and the waves crash, if you build your life on the rock that is Jesus Christ, you will not fail and you will not fall. That you'll be strong in your soul. Thanks for listening to the Awakening Podcast. We hope this message has encouraged you. If you want to learn more about our church, visit us online at awakening.global. We'll see you soon.